in this hour, uh, I promised you uh, it'd be a blacker than, uh, blacker than black show today. It's the first day of Black History Month. We do Black History every month around, every day, I should say, around here, uh, not just in February, the shortest and coldest month of the year. But uh, go figure. But uh, in this day, uh, we are having a number of conversations, uh, I think, that matter to black people writ large. Uh, and in this hour, uh, Ernest Krim is an anti-racist educator who left the public school system, left it as a history teacher to deliver his lessons to a much broader audience. Ernest throws open the doors on black history, dispelling myths and celebrating hopes uh, and heroes and she rose through social media's engaging lens, one captivating tale at a time. And I'm honored to have Ernest Krim on this program. Ernest, how are you today, sir? Hey, what's up, brother Tavis? I'm great, man. It's a pleasure and honor to be here with you. I've admired your work for a while, man. So, I'm just glad to be here speaking with you, man. You're kind, and I thank you for those words, and I'm honored to have you on the program to talk about your work and your witness. Let me ask a couple of broad questions first uh, to set the frame for this, and then we'll we'll, we'll build on it. Um, so the, the first question for me is why, and obviously you're a black man, uh, I am curious as to why, again, some broad things to begin with. Why did you, when you did, make the decision as a black man, a black male, to go into the teaching profession? Why? Yeah, so I, I definitely did not grow up wanting to be an educator. That wasn't on my list, wasn't on my top five or top ten list, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, first thing I wanted to be, of course, was an athlete, like a lot of black men and, and boys in general across the country. But I always knew I was going to college. Academics, that was at a high premium in my household, and it was stressed a lot. So I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I would at least be in the environment where academics was, of course, um, you know, uh, valued at a high premium. So when I, I went to college, I went to U of I, and I decided to major in psychology. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would be interested in it. And it is a very interesting subject, especially if you learned it from an Afrocentric lens, which I wasn't. Right. So I did not do well. I almost flunked out. I was on academic probation. So the next semester, I came back, and it was pretty much do or die the whole semester. I decided to take a course, which was African-American Studies 101. Um, out of pure curiosity, and I didn't get a chance to take the elective, of course, in, in high school. Um, and I said, let me just see what this is about. And, man, Travis, I fell in love with the mm -hmm. course. Like, that was the first time. The, of course, the first A I got. And it was also the first time that I was. Uh, I went to class and I sat in the front. I got there early and I went to the professor's office hours. And I began to say, like, I think I want to know because know more about this because it's answering all the questions I have as a black man from the south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's letting me know why my neighborhood looks so drastically different than the white neighborhood I was bused to for eight years in elementary school. I took one more course after that. That professor, Dr. Abdul Al-Kamat, was so amazing that I said, I got to do what he's doing for other brothers that he did for me. You know, so I got to be in the class. So I got to be a professor. Mm -hmm. um, and then just to kind of wrap this up, long story short, my mom was an educator for 30 plus years in Chicago. I went home that semester and told her about him only to find out that she had him as well when she was wow. at uh, UIC <laughs> in the 70s, man. So I said, OK, that's that's fate right there. <laughs> yeah, that, that is that is that is quite the story. We're just getting started. When we come forward, I want to probe that story a bit more, uh, including how it felt for you when you took that first uh, African-American studies, or Afro-Am, same thing, uh, that first class. And I'll share a story about how uh, I responded. When I got to college, I, I went to a high school where there were a few African-Americans. Most of us were in my family. I've got nine brothers and sisters. We made up most of the Negroes in the school. Uh, and so I never had a black teacher, never had an African-American studies course until I got to college. 
And Lord, when I when I took that course, I, I think I felt the same way Ernest Krim uh, felt. But we'll talk about it when we come forward. Just getting started on Tavis Smiley. From the Merc Park with love, love, this love. is Tavis Smiley. Oh. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Tavis Smiley and Ernest Krim. Um, leave it to Miles, my board out, to give me some data that I uh, did not have uh, at the ready. I mentioned earlier that today Garrett Morris is receiving his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and we congratulate Garrett for that. I mentioned he's up in his 80s. I didn't know exactly how old he was. Turns out that Garrett Morris is 87 today. <laughs> I, was, I was saying to Miles that when you get a star on the Walk of Fame, which I am honored to have, I got one maybe 10 years ago, uh, and when I got mine, they, you, you, they give you an option to decide what day you want to receive your star. So people tie them to all sorts of things. If you got a new movie coming out, a new record coming out, people, when you get them, you figure out a day that works for you and you build some media around it, right? And all your fans show up and it's a huge, great, uh, wonderful, loving celebration. And I will never forget that day, one of the great days of my life. Uh, so Garrett Morris obviously chose today to get his star because today he turns 87. So it's not just congratulations for his star on the Walk of Fame, but happy birthday, uh, Brother Garrett. We love you. Uh, and are proud of you and glad that at 87, you finally got the recognition that you deserve. So that's a beautiful thing. That said, more of our conversation now with Ernest Krim. In case you've just tuned in, he's an anti-racist educator who actually left the public school system as a history teacher to deliver his lessons to a much broader audience. We're just getting to that story uh, as we move through this hour. So you said something a moment ago that I want to come back to. Two things, in fact, Ernest. Uh, the first thing is this. Um, I listened to you and I got goosebumps as you were telling the story about that first African-American studies course uh, that you that you took at, at U of I. Uh, you're at U of I. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm at uh, IU. So you're at U of I. I'm at IU. Yeah. Uh, you're at University of Illinois. I'm at Indiana University. Uh, and I remember like it was yesterday, my very first mm -hmm. class uh, uh, in African-American studies. Uh, Dr. McElroy is my professor. And then I took another course with Dr. Wiggins. Uh, and, and I remember again, how it felt for me all these, I mean, I'm only 18, of course, I've been living 18 years and I have never been exposed to any kind of black history. I go to uh, a school in uh, North central Indiana uh, for, for grade school, for middle school, high school, the school district and the, the system is pretty much all white. Only a few black folk in this in the school. And I, as I said earlier, I, I've got nine siblings. So we made up most of the Negroes in the school. Um, and so it wasn't until I got to college. Uh, and again, not my first semester, but my second semester that I finally took this course. And it fundamentally changed my life seeing a black male professor and learning so much more about my history. I remember it again. I will recall it for as long as I live and how it just so, so impacted me. And I, I started to sense that it had the same impact on you, even though your mother was an educator. Yeah. 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 It's just a sense of pride. You know, like I grew up in a household where my mom she was a teacher and, 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 my, and my parents, both of them, instilled a sense of pride in us regularly. Mm -hmm. We talked about Malcolm X and Dr. King a lot. We had posters of black history all across the home. We had this series that was actually sponsored by Budweiser. It was called um, Great Kings and Queens of Africa. I remember so that. I remember posters. that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. So I remember always seeing that reflection. My mom always told me she was campaigning for Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, when mm -hmm. she was pregnant with me. But to be able to sit down and exclusively learned about our history uh, for an entire semester was just something, again, I had a black male professor too, Dr. Clarence Lane, and it, and it made me feel like we were so much more than we 
um, have been, of course, have been advertised to us. And I want people to even think about this. I went to a majority black high school. My high school was probably 99 percent black. But the African-American studies uh, course that they offered, their African-American uh, history course, was actually an elective. And that's the case for most schools across the country. Mm-hmm. You had a majority black school, but your kids are not being taught um, from a, a black perspective. Like we, we take world history freshman year, but we start in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Or we look at pictures of ancient Kemen and we don't see images of us. So to see us in that course, uh, like it, like you said, it, it sparked something in me. And I haven't stopped since then. Yeah. Um, you're making me think. And I, that's a good thing. Uh, I'm trying to move ahead and you keep you, you keep me stuck in this space. But, <laughs> but that, that's OK, because it's, it's getting good, as we say around here. Um, your comment now about the fact that in your 99 percent black high school, uh, it was uh, our history was an elective that that that's arresting to hear that it was, in fact, an elective. I wonder how much better off we might be as we celebrate the first day of Black History Month if black history in this country in our school systems were not an elective, uh, but a requirement, particularly given what we're enduring right now, the banning of books and uh, uh, teachers, uh, uh, school districts rather, who don't want to teach the truth, et cetera, et cetera. You know the frame that we're in. But I just wonder how much better off we would be if black history was not an elective in this country. Well, let me tell you this. One of the studies I cite in my first book, Black History Saved My Life, is a study that says that black children who are taught to have racial pride perform better academically. That's something that was, that was a study done by a professor from Harvard and the University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. That's about 10 years old, I think, that study. To me, that lets us know that we are intentionally not doing what's best for our kids. What mm-hmm. do our kids gain by taking a U.S. history course and learn about George Washington and Tom, like include them in history, of course, but not from their angle and their perspective. Our kids shouldn't learn that they were lied to when they're our age or when they're in high school, you know, or in college or when they mm-hmm. get on social media and find a creator like me. <laughs> yeah. What, 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 what is, what is the, um, this is getting good. As I said, what, what, what is the, the result? What is the pride? Let me, let me reframe that. Mm-hmm. What is the result or what is the price that we pay when we discover years later to your Powerful point. You didn't. You don't pull any punches. I love that. That we discovered years later that we've been lied to. I mean, I, I I've, I've thought about a number of times about things I've been taught my whole life, and you get to a certain age, you realize they lied to me. It, it's it's just yeah. not true. Yeah, right. You know, like we we grow up. Some of us learn about Santa Claus and, and everything, and we find out early on, and that and that's all fun and games. Right. But when you are nineteen, twenty, twenty five, thirty, like a lot of the people who follow me. You know, I have people in my age group and above who are learning as we go, learning new things. You feel as though it was an intentional omission. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we should learn about, you know, the so-called, you know, founding fathers in this country, but tell the whole truth of it. Like, we have politicians now saying we've never had a racist country. Mm-hmm. Like, how, 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 can you, how can you fix your mouth to say something so egregious like that? Yeah. So, like, we're, we're, we're depositing information into our kids' brain that, that, was, that seeks to maintain this social structure. That's yeah. the purpose of it, but that but that's not what we realize until we're much older. Then we have to spend a lot of our adult life unlearning these things. Yep. And the sad part is some of those politicians are black who make that kind of comment. Um <laughs> right. I, 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 I had I had a real problem with Kamala Harris. She got she she went too far for me on that yeah. comment. Now, I, I said, yeah, Kamala, you, I agree. you put down the crack pipe, Kamala, put down the crack <laughs> pipe. Um I, I know you want to be in the White House and you want to be president, but don't start telling those lies now. That that was just that yeah. was that was that was disturbing for me. How how, how did you read that moment? 
Oh, brother, I mean, it's the same thing. Like, I, I personally don't put a lot of faith into politicians, regardless of where they stand. Of course, I do have a preference because, I, you know, I do want to have access to health care and things mm -hmm. like that. But I, I, I know that their goal is to uh, cater towards whiteness. And that's unfortunate because if we have two political parties that are saying that they are advocating for completely different things, but then they both have the same answer about something that's fundamentally wrong, that should let you know um, who they're actually catering to. And it's not towards us because how can you look a black person in the eye and tell them that and then continue to uh, speak as if that's actually true? Yeah, I'm, I'm driving and working my way toward your leaving uh, the public school system, which, you know, I'm going to indict you about. I'm going I'm to hit you hard on that when we get to that part of the story <laughs> yeah. and make you explain this thing, because uh, there are enough black men in the school system. So we'll talk about that. So hold on. You know, as, as Sam and Dave said, hold on. I'm coming. I'm going I'm going to get to that thing. Uh, but but before I do that, uh, I asked you at the start of this conversation, why uh, did you become an educator? You gave a you gave your answer to that, which we all appreciate. Um, but now I'm curious as to when you got in the classroom, take me back to when you first got yeah. in the classroom and all the hopes and dreams and aspirations you had. <laughs> as we say, tell me about that part, uh, Ernest, that part. Man, you know, I, I started teaching on the south side of Chicago, man, at an alternative school um, with kids who a lot of folks didn't have faith in. And, and, and I loved it, man. I loved it. I taught in Roseland. And um, I, I I wasn't getting paid that well initially, but I, I love the freedom I had. I love being able to create with the kids. And, and, and this was before everybody had smartphones. I started around 2009, 2010. You know, I would bring my digital camera to work and we would go outside and create different commercials and things like that. And in, in my mind, I, I, I had the capacity to change the world starting with my kids. Mm -hmm. And I carried that when I went to a bigger uh, school district in a town outside of Chicago called Joliet. And again, the, 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 the same hopes and aspirations were there, but it comes to a point where you begin to see that you're not teaching what you know is best for our kids. You're teaching something from somebody else's script. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like if you were a, a, a newscaster, eventually you might want to get to the point where you're adding commentary instead of reading the teleprompter that somebody wrote for you. Cause you might not agree with what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So like my whole purpose was to get into cracks and I taught from our perspective every year. Then I taught at a majority Hispanic school. I would include those narratives too. I was I was like essentially teaching like Howard Zinn's book. I wanted to teach from the perspective mm. of the people. Then I would add that African twist to it as well. But when you get observed, you have to fit under a certain paradigm. Yeah. They want you to teach and act a certain way. And the moment when I said I got to start to get out of here was probably about five years in. I said I don't think I can do this for thirty five years mm. because. They're taking my love for children for granted. And for every educator out there that's in it for the right reason, they agree and they're probably clapping right now. They take your love for children for granted and they abuse you in this system. The education system is a reflection of the, the fault of this entire system. When we talk about uh, having to change policing and things like that, I agree. But we often overlook education because every system in this country has has faults that lead towards uh, a, a road of enriching whiteness. And it's, doing, and it's damaging black kids, yeah. Hispanic kids, Asian kids, and poor white kids, too. Yeah. Two comments, and then my next question. Uh, the first comment is, every time I hear the, the name Joliet, uh, I think of the Blues Brothers. I'll leave that alone. But I think of the Blues <laughs> Brothers every time I hear somebody say Joliet. Uh, secondly, um, I, I realize now why you left the system. You didn't leave. They kicked you out because you start teaching Howard Zinn. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, you start teaching Howard Zinn, you're going to get kicked out. You're going to get asked to leave. You, you didn't leave. You didn't leave of your own choice. They kicked you out teaching Howard Zinn. Um, but, but back to my, but to the question I want to pose. 
I, 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 I hear you. I hear you. And I, I don't just mm-hmm. hear you. I feel you. I, I felt yeah. your passion yeah. around your comment that they take yeah. the public system too often, public school system too often, takes your love for the children for granted and they abuse you. Unpack that for me. The abuse is, as a high school educator, I might have anywhere from 130 to 150 kids. I have one peer, I have one block of 45 minutes per day to plan lessons for all of those kids in two different subjects, right? Then I also have that same block of 45 to 50 minutes to grade papers after they do their work. So now I'm, I'm caught in a conundrum of I have to split my time 25, 25 minutes to plan and then grade papers. And we're talking if I, if I assign a paper – not like not like an essay that I have to read all of these papers and lesson plan. So then now what we're getting at is I got to take that home, right? But I got a family. I got a wife. I got kids. I get off at 3.30, but I'm not stopping at 3.30. So when do you want me to actually spend time with my family? Mm. My, my job is not my life. My, my, my love for the kids is my life, but not me taking this home. Then you're going to ask me to do reports, you know, for spades. Then you're going to ask me to fill out this for my evaluation, then I got to worry about you coming in and dissecting my teaching skill based on something you see one time, mm. right? Based, based on growth over a nine-month period, which ain't even possible for the most part, mm-hmm. right? So my, I, I feel like I have the same like, like uh, passion for this and calling for this as a pastor feels when they feel like they're called. Mm-hmm. I'm called to teach our kids, so I can't be boxed in by a system. And then when I, when I dealt with a hate crime in 2016, Oh, it was all it was it was a wrap because I said, now y'all definitely not gonna tell me what I can and cannot do. And I became more and more outspoken, not just in the class, up until that point. I started to speak outside the class. I started going to city council meetings, I started going to protests, I started posting videos. I was fighting for justice for myself, and I felt like I couldn't just do it for myself. I gotta do it for our kids too. Mm. But I got a job from eight to three that's holding me down a little bit. I got two minutes right now. We'll continue when we come forward, but give me the top line in these two minutes on what happened in twenty sixteen. Uh, me and my wife, minding our business, were at a party in Chicago um, during the summer, day party. Um, and a white woman who we thought was done using a beanbag that we grabbed, uh, she came up to us, started screaming at us, and she had two black friends and another white friend with her. We didn't give the bag back, and she eventually called us the N-word and spat on us. Mm. And it was recorded. And how did you navigate that moment? Uh, oh, man, <laughs> Un- unlike I used to as a child, because I had the phone in my hand and-, and she was calling the cops over at the same time. Luckily for us, the cops would eventually throw her out, but they did not arrest her. And that was a problem I had because what she did was against the law. You're not going to violate me and my wife without paying for it. So that's when I began my fight outside the class. I asked that question in part, Ernest, you'll appreciate this. Yesterday, uh, one of my guests was Christian Cooper. Christian Cooper is the brother in Central Park. Yeah, I remember him. Remember yeah. The, yeah, the bird, the bird watcher, uh, and this yep. white woman. We call him Karen. So actually, her name was Amy. Uh, but Amy yeah. uh, just went in, and he yep. had the presence of mind as you did to pull out the phone and to record the incident. Uh, and um, yesterday in our conversation, he said something that I'm still wrestling with 25 hours later. And his point was that as black people, we are sadly from time to time going to find ourselves in these situations and circumstances through no mm-hmm. fault of our own. But mm-hmm. if, 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 if you can remain calm in that situation, mm. then you win um, mm-hmm. more often than not. If you can remain calm. Now, you watch what happened to him on that videotape mm-hmm. with her, this white lady just acting crazy and going apoplectic. Uh, it's hard to see how he remained calm. 
to hear you now tell the story of you and your wife being uh, denigrated, uh, called nigga and spat upon and remaining calm about it. And she wasn't even arrested. Uh, y'all got more Holy Ghost than I got. I, I'm, I'm, not, I, I, I believe the king is. I mean, king is my hero. And uh, the difference I tell people all the time is that king was a pacifist. I am not. If you slap me, you're gonna get slapped back. Um, uh, so I don't know that I could have passed the test that you and your wife or Christian Cooper passed. Um, but it is arresting to hear that story. I got a few more things I want to say about that when we come forward. And we didn't even got to the good part yet. Why did Ernest leave? I think you get it now. Why'd you leave the school system? And how do you leave when our kids need to see black male teachers? And what are you doing that justifies your having left? Oh, it's going to get good when we come forward. Ernest Krim right now on Tavis Smiling. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. All right, Ernest Krim, I want to go back to that moment in 2016 where you subjected you and your wife um, to this hate um, incident. Um, on the one hand, here you are loving children and spending your life uh, teaching black history. But then because you are black, um, you end up being victimized. How did you navigate your way through that moment? Yeah, you know what? Um, I felt like for me, I know people often say, you know, they mess with the wrong one. I felt like she she genuinely messed with the right one that day because at that point in time, I'm 28. I had been studying our history for about 10 years. I had been teaching for about six years. You know, this was the same summer Alton Sterling was killed. Philando Castile was killed. Black Lives Matters is doing his thing. And we 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 all we was all woke you know mm. what i'm saying so like i i i can't say i was shocked but i wasn't surprised because mm. i don't bother people i mind my business but at the same time i understand as a black man as a black person that doesn't matter we're here yeah. because we were minding our business whiteness is going to do what it does so I had everything I needed to fight through it. I felt like I had the perfect career. I was a pro-black teacher. I was mentoring our kids. I was teaching this way in the class. So it wasn't something I was just going to say, yeah, um, she she messed with us and, you know, dang, it was a bad day. No, it's like I'm about to pursue this and everybody's mm -hmm. going to remember her name for what she did. So I was ready. Yeah, as I said, King is my hero, um, but I am not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist. <laughs> wait, like hey, he wait, was. wait, yeah. well, bro, that, hey, I, that wasn't the plan because I'm, a, I'm, a, bro, Malcolm X is my guy. <laughs> that day, that that day, something happened though. Yeah. I, I, I think the choice. I think what it was, honestly, bro. For one, it was trauma. Yeah, but two, mm -hmm. I don't know if I had responded that way if I'd be here because the cops that she was calling over on us, they eventually came and they saw her as the aggressor, not us. Mm. Um, how rare is that? How rare is that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm glad they called the right cops that day. Let's just leave it at that. That they called the right <laughs> ones. Um, to, to your earlier point, uh, but that sent you when they didn't arrest her. Or they took her away, but didn't arrest her. That sent you into advocacy mode. It's one thing yeah. to be a, a, a an educator. It's another thing to be uh, one who advances Black history. It's another thing, though, right. to move from teaching it to becoming an advocate. How did that transition right. work? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up seeing it, man. My my mom was someone, not to say that she was like on the picket lines and stuff like that a lot, but she was in a teacher's union. I saw that. Of course, she was advocating for Harold Washington. I saw that. Whenever we had any issues at our school or anybody, like my mom was going to confront it, and she was fearless. I remember a time when I got pulled over by a cop in high school for no reason at all, and I told my mom, and she had us go to the police station and file a report on them. Mm -hmm. So, like, even though she knew something wouldn't, wouldn't likely happen from it. It was just the process of going through that. So in my mind, and, and between her and my father and the confidence they instilled me with, 
like I, I I reject that you think you're gonna get away with something because you a different you know shade of color. Mm-hmm. Like ain't ain't no way you ain't no way you in superior to me. So mm-hmm. like we about to get down and I'm about to make and, and in my mind, uh, Tavis, there was no way around it. She was going to get arrested and she was going to serve some time. And that was just going to be what it was because if she wasn't, then it was going to be another case on their hand. It was the mindset I had. Yeah. So I I. I I started speaking after that because people asked me to share my story. I started posting videos because I had to get like the frustration out and the classroom wasn't enough because if that's happening to me, my thought was I'm teaching kids who are 16, 17, 18. I know this is happening to y'all, but ain't nobody out here. If nobody's advocating for me, they ain't advocating for y'all. And I see it with the curriculum and I see it with what, you know, I would eventually hear when I started the BSU with my colleague that same school year. No, here's the here's the parallel, another parallel in your story and my story. We talked earlier about uh, the experience we both had taking that first African-American studies course um, when, we were in, when we were in college, you at U of I and me at Indiana University. And now um, this hate incident that, you know, that spurred you to become the advocate that you are. Um, in my sophomore year of college, um, after, you know, I, I, I know King's work. I'm reciting King's speeches. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, uh, I'm all into the, to the dream and the vision and doing my part to make uh, black America better. And I believe then, and I believe now that when you make black America better, you make all of America better. So I was doing my thing as much as I could student leader on the campus of Indiana university. And then at the, near the end of my sophomore year, uh, a friend of mine named Denver Smith, who was on the football team, got shot and killed by the white cops in town. They mm-hmm. shot him, made national news. They shot him an inordinate number of times in his back. This is at Bloomington, Indiana. They shot Denver an inordinate number of times in his back, but then claimed self-defense. How do you shoot a brother that mm-hmm. many times in his back? He's trying to get away from you, and then you, 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 your claim is self-defense? So here I am doing all my king thing, and now all of a sudden I'm being called upon to move into that advocacy lane because they're shooting black students on a college campus. Right. And so right. that, that, that when people ask me all the time, like what, what was that moment in your life that made you become the advocate for our people that you are? That was it. Yeah. When my friend got shot in the back a bunch of times and killed by these cops, these white cops in Bloomington. Yeah. And I'd never experienced anything like that. So you're thankfully in your situation, nobody died. But when right. you, we, but my, my point is that and I said this yesterday from uh, Bernard Lafayette, one of Dr. King's lieutenants said to me years ago when I was a kid, uh, in, in fact, when I was a kid in college at a national uh, student leadership conference, he spoke in Atlanta. The first time I met him and Mrs. King, Coretta Scott King, he said to us that day, as long as you black, you're going to be in a struggle. As long as you black, you're going to be in a struggle. So the sooner you fall in love with the struggle, the better off you're going to be. Just fall in love with the struggle right now. And I've never forgotten those words from all those all those years ago. I, I, I'm sharing this story because I want to get back to this point, the central point, which is, um, there are moments in our lives where we are called upon to do more and to be more. And sadly, for many of us, it takes having to find ourselves in a situation like that before we really, really, you know, step our game up. Uh, I assume that um, that uh, you have you have no regrets uh, about the way that you got into your advocacy. Oh, not at all. And just to kind of echo some of what you said, not the exact same story, but I think oftentimes when we learn that in college, like it becomes a collision course, especially at a PWI, because mm-hmm. at the same time I'm learning this history, you know, we had blackface parties at the school and then mm-hmm. you know, the Genesis six incident happens. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there was a, a variety of things in which I would be out, you know, uh, protesting with other people, just not on the front lines. 
So, and, 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 I, and like you, and going back to your question, I definitely don't regret it at all because I felt like I had wanted to do more, you know? And mm-hmm. like you said, unfortunately, that was a thing that sped it up. But I knew I had something inside of me, but it was just the shyness. It was being timid. But at that point, it became I became so fearless because, I, again, if, if this could happen to me minding my business, what am I neglecting, right? Like what, yeah. like all this information I'm learning, it's cool to teach, you know, 100 kids a day, but there are kids who aren't getting this anywhere because at that time we were 1.7% of all educators. Now we're one3 so like for me, I, I I had to like I didn't fight the way I normally do, but I wanted to use that as a lesson to say that we can fight in that instant if we want to, and we would have been you know legally able to. But at the same time, we have to also commit to fighting after that. And yes. I don't think we are often educated with what it means to fight after the yeah. bout. At, like you know what I'm saying? There, oh, there's yeah. so much that goes into that that we have to be educated on. Um, I, I concur, um, uh, completely. Uh, when we come forward, uh, why he left the public school system and what he's been doing since then, he's doing it wonderfully well. You hear all about it. When we come forward and dialogue with Ernest Krim on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Yeah, man. Tavis Smiley, Smiley continues when we come forward. 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 More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley Smiley and Ernest Krim, who I'm delighted to have uh, on this program uh, in this hour. My time is getting away from me, Ernest. Let me just jump right ahead in this story. Um, So why would you leave the public school system? Yeah, so after I dealt with that incident, um, I spent the last two weeks of my summer break at the time trying to find a lawyer. And, you know, I was consumed with the case. So I was teaching, but at the same time, I'm checking my email um, I'm getting feedback. I'm meeting with detectives and everything. And it took a couple, uh, two and a half months to get her arrested. I'm taking out time to go to trial. It took about a year for the trial to happen. In the midst of that, I started writing my book because I was, I had a breakdown over the incident and working in a white space and just the trauma that comes with that. And I also started speaking and I found for one, that my lesson, the lesson that I could extract from my personal story and compare it to our history was more impactful to our kids than the stuff they were forcing me to teach in U.S. history. Mm. Also, at the same time, I was getting paid more than I would get in a day, sometimes in a week. And to me, it didn't make sense for me because I felt like I was one of the best teachers. The kids would tell me that I felt that way, but I I could never be compensated the the way I should be unless I worked longer years, more years, I mean. And and, and that's to me, that's a flawed system. Um, And so the more I spoke, the more I urged to get out. And in 2021... Of course, we know what happened in 2020, but then in 2021, uh, I started posting TikToks just as a way to reach another audience, and mm-hmm. they took off. And my platform just grew and it grew, and I had people reaching out to me to help, like to, to promote brands that were in alignment with what I was talking about, which was like the wildest thing to me because I couldn't believe that what I was speaking about was in alignment with brands yeah. that wanted to promote something. So for me, it's too urgent of a time for me to stay at one school yeah. and, and, and teach 30 kids at a time while fighting off administrators, while somebody who can't even teach to my level is telling me that I'm not up to par in a certain category. And, and, and Tavis, at what point in your life have you learned something at a high level while sitting down for eight hours a day? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the school system is so flawed. Like, how are we graduating people and, and deeming our school successful when our kids are leaving situations that that are, are, are the 
the basis of systemic injustices. Like the, the true education would be them being taught how to repair what happened. Mm-hmm. Like a, a school that's successful is actually helping the environment, not sending them away to never return again. Yeah. So I, my idea is I'm thinking 100 years in the future. These schools are irrelevant now. Our kids on the phone. Our kids are learning from everything but the teacher. They're just doing what they need to do to get a grade and get up out of there. Mm. That's 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 hard to hear, but yet that's wisdom speaking. Uh, that you, you're speaking truth. It's just hard to hear. Um, I I I recognize that you left um, because you were being suffocated. That's my word, not yours. I, yeah. I, I, but I sense you were being suffocated. So I ain't mad at you for for getting out and to, to get the air that you needed uh, to breathe and to to to, to grow uh, and to do what you've been called to do. And yet I want to ask right quick: uh, Did you ever have any misgivings? about abandoning these kids because you know they don't see enough black men. Yeah, I mean, that that's the toughest thing. Any of my complaints about my years in teaching have never been about the kids. The kids were the reason why I was able to push through. Right. I was I, I left after 12 years. I was ready to go many years before then, you know. Yeah. But I, I, for one, it wasn't the time. But also, too, I had to make sure it was it, it was – you know, at a time where I could find solace in making that decision and not personalize it. I did. I I shared tears over that, you know, but I also said at the same time, there are some black kids in another town that need me as well. Black kids in LA, New York, my hometown, Chicago, Miami, Atlanta. And I think that, and I have also, I have an online uh, K through five black history course where I'm teaching our kids through books every week. So it was a tough, yeah. No, it it was a tough, that sentence, it was a tough what? I was going to say it was, it was a tough thing to do, but then I also understand, too, that it, we need more of us in the class, yeah. but I think that we also need to make a push to have more of us in the building, period, whether that's subbing, volunteering, mm-hmm. all of that. Fair enough. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Ernest Krim, I'll give him the, the microphone uh, and let him uh, uh, share with you uh, about his classroom today. He's still in the classroom. It's just a much, much, much larger classroom. We'll talk about that when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. This is Ernest Krim on Tavis Smiley. i got four minutes left. I'm going to give you all four minutes to you, Ernest. Tell us about your classroom these days. Yeah, so now my class is global, literally and figuratively. I'm speaking in person to people, our young kids across the country. I'm also using the phone to connect with folks around the world. Um, I want us to remember and understand that the way we learned in Africa and the way we risked our lives to learn during enslavement is vastly different than what we see now. The education system we have now is based on building conformity and building up the business interests of this nation. We can learn any and everywhere. The way your kids are nurtured and brought up to learn has nothing to do with how they learn in school. They don't learn how to walk by sitting behind a table or desk and reading a book about it. They don't learn how to talk by doing that. They learn by action. They learn by engaging and experiencing life. They touch and grab everything because they want to see what's going to happen. I want our kids and our community to understand that it's up to us and only us to rectify what we see with the with, with the purposeful banning and censorship of our education. So I'm teaching on social media. I'm teaching in person. I got two books, Black History Saved My Life and the ABCs of Affirming Black Children. And I have a K-5 online Black History Club for our kids. Because for me, just like Malcolm said, education must take place by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. How do folks follow your work and your witness? 
Yeah, you can follow me uh, online on Instagram and TikTok at MRCrim3. So I still go by my teacher name, Mr. Krim3. I'm on LinkedIn as well, YouTube. Um, and you can find my books on ErnestCrim.com or Amazon. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, that's the reason why I call myself a public teacher now, Tavis. I used to say public speaker, but it's, I'm a public teacher. I'll teach mm. our kids and our community any and everywhere we at. <laughs> yeah, and Krim is spelled C-R-I-M, C-R-I-M. Um, I, I hear, uh, I hear in your voice. Uh, first of all, you're, you're you're always passionate, of course, but I hear in your voice. Uh, I hear no regrets. I hear a peace. I hear a solitude. I hear a joy. Um, that you are in the classroom, that you are in the space that you are in now. Yeah, Tavis, I, I don't think I'd be able to speak with you right now if I didn't make that decision. You know, it gets to a yeah. point where you have to take the next step, and, and, and there are some environments that can hold you back. I'm actually, like, in the same I'm, – I'm able to mentor kids now within the same school district playing by my own rules. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, a, that's a testament to being able to take that leap, but also an educated leap. I planned it. I didn't just jump. <laughs> it was yeah. a, it was a step. It was a step each year, and I, I definitely have no regrets. We're about moving forward, and it's way too much work for us to do in our community to look back like that. What do you say to people right now who find themselves uh, in the same situation you were in years ago? I'm thinking of the song. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. What do you say to them? Uh, those persons who are in situations where they know that this ain't the right space for them. If what you're doing is not your passion, then whatever that is, you need to start a side hustle and make slow steps. And, and, and every year, add more to it. Put some money to the side. Um, we are in a, an environment now where it's possible to do what we had to wait for people to uh, to allow us to do back then. We can take the onus ourselves. Mm-hmm. Find a support group. Like You do not have to be in that environment. And I know not everybody needs to be an entrepreneur, but everybody deserves to be deserves to be in an environment where they are loved and appreciated. So start taking that step right now and don't delay. His name is Ernest Krim, and I have delighted in this conversation. Brother Ernest, all the best to you. Thank you for your work, your witness, and thank you for this conversation of inspiration. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you, sir. Good to have you on. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.